Hello and welcome. This is the Ultra Working Podcast. I am Chris Natterer and I am joined again by Lee Knowlton. Lee, good to have you back on the show. Great to be back, Chris. Thanks for having me. And I think today we have a really, really good one. Um, we're going over a paper that's called Relating Natural Language Aptitude to Individual Differences in Learning Programming Languages. And this was uh, published in Nature in March 2020 by a team of four researchers, Pratt, Matiasta, Motarella, Kuo, and I apologize for any wrong pronunciations. And um, I'll just quickly summarize what they were trying to find out. In the introduction, they basically go into the fact that programming is now considered an essential skill, but there has been very little research done on the cognitive basis of what it takes to actually learn programming languages and the aptitudes that you should bring to the table to do so. And very often programming is or has been historically connected to mathematical skills. And when you look at the college requirements to go into programming classes, they very often require advanced math courses as a prerequisite. There is, however, an idea that learning these programming languages, specifically modern programming languages, is actually much closer related to the ability of learning a second language in adulthood. And um, yeah, the study goes into the fact that this has this research has been more or less ignored. There have been some studies done that investigate the relationship between learning a second language and learning programming. But these studies, you know, um, are quite old at this point and they don't reflect current programming languages or the current teaching uh, standards. And they're trying to establish sort of what psychometrics or what aptitudes um, are most closely related to your ability to um, learn a, a language. And then, you know, bring this down to um, the very specifics and maybe a little bit more, um, you know, more natural language. They were basically trying to find out, hey, what is more relevant when you're trying to learn programming? In this case, they looked at Python. Your ability to do math or to work with numbers, this is called numeracy. Um, your general cognitive ability presented by things like uh, fluid intelligence, working memory, um, and, 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 and cognitive markers of that sort, um, or your ability to learn um, or your aptitude for languages there is something called the modern language aptitude test that was used to to evaluate that and yeah they ran a number of uh, students through a python learning experience and 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 saw what kind of correlations they, they could find yeah it's a fascinating paper it's a fascinating paper and so like let's caveat up front i've worked both as a programmer and a language teacher i've learned foreign languages myself and so i have a little bit of experience in both of the domains but i, I wouldn't consider myself certainly i wouldn't consider myself a neuroscientist but i also wouldn't consider myself an expert in all the literature in either of these domains um, in relation to learning it and and whatnot 
I think that uh, there are a few other important things about the study um, that are worth pointing out. Number one is that they're looking at Python learning in the very beginning of a language. And so I think, I think they had people that had never studied programming before. Is that right? That's right, yeah. Yeah, so they had a cohort of people that had never studied programming before and also people who were not exposed to a foreign language before the age of six. So it's unlikely they grew up in like a, a bilingual household or something of that sort. And so you have the, the overlap here. Um, but people who have learned language or like a moderate degree of, of skill in a foreign language, like later on in life. And so they're like learning a, a programming language is, uh, you know, it, it's a long journey. It's not a, not a six lesson journey or a make rock, paper, scissors. Uh, and they recognize this at, towards the end of the paper. They say, hey, you know, for the future, it's not just these six lessons and it's not just Python. You know, there are other foreign, there are other programming languages that are uh, more obtuse. Um, they use Java as an example, I think. And also, you know, there are different stages to, to learning programming. Um, and they even, I think they may even make a differentiation between like learning to program or, or the learning pace and the accuracy rate later on and stuff like that. We can dive deeper into that later. But uh, yeah, I just think it's worth bringing up upfront because I can see how people listening to well, learning to program chuckle, chuckle, right. chuckle, like, but no, they're looking at in the very beginning, how do people approach learning a programming language? I think it's, it's, uh, it's really, really cool um, to see how they've broken it down. But yeah, what, could you tell us more about, could you tell the listeners more about uh, what specifically they looked at? Yeah, I am. I think it makes sense to go into the study design maybe specifically. So um, yeah, they took a, it took 42 healthy young adults as they call them aged 18 to 35 with, as you said, no prior programming experience. And they basically ran them through a, an online learning ex experience. And um, the, these participants were, before actually you know, going into these, this, this learning experience, they did a number of tests on them to establish these you know, psychometrics or their, their attitude. So they, before even starting to learn, they had them do a, a test, it's called the AMLAT, to determine, well, how, how good are these, um, these 42 uh, adults at learning a second language? There's a pretty well-established test for that. Um, they did some um, tests to establish their level of numeracy, the RASH-based numeracy scale. Really interesting as well to look at some of these these um, metrics or these tests that they're using to establish these these qualities. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's get into that later. I did look a little bit into the the MLAT because I was curious. It's pretty cool. Okay, let's. I'll summarize. I just used a, a whole list of tests to establish how good they are at languages, at math, and at more cognitive, like general abilities, um, working memory, fluid intelligence, and things of, of that nature. They also this is going to be really interesting. They ran them through a um, resting state EEG. So for five minutes, they recorded their brain patterns, um, you know, in different frequencies. And I can't really say that I understand the, the specific yeah. details, but it's going to get interesting. So they recorded their brain patterns, you know, stored this away. And now we have all of this data for each of these individual students. And now they're going through this learning experience. One of the other things I, I noticed while I was reading through this paper was that they 
took a lot of these neurocognitive models from language learning and said, you know, this is the resting state EEG that's valuable for language learning aptitude. Let's see if we can port this model over and look at the specific parts of that that are that are useful for language learning and see if it plays the same for for learning uh, programming. So they're not just like taking a bunch of random tests from from here and there, but like, yeah, these are the things that we that other researchers have found useful um, in that domain. Let's take them over and and map them onto learning a new programming language. Right. They basically took brain patterns that had already in prior research been established to connect to someone who has had successfully learned a second language, I think, yep. more or less along those those lines. Yeah, so they then ran them through this test and um, or this, this, lang- this learning uh, course. Um, the participants had to you know, do challenges, uh, report on quizzes, report back when they seek help, just to make sure that they're actually engaged in the, in the learning. And um, they were assessing their success rate, basically, their success, like how good were these, these different people at learning um, Python or completing the, the, the work here in three different outcomes. Number one, the learning rate. So how fast were they learning? Secondly, their programming accuracy. So after finishing this, this course, they had to write a, a bunch of code They had to create a rock, paper, scissors game and expert programmers would come in and rate their accuracy on completing this game. And then thirdly, their declarative knowledge, they had to complete a a multiple choice test just to see how well have they understood the the programming language, learned the semantic knowledge and the, the general functions of Python in this example. So that's basically all the data. We now have a set of results. We know how fast these these folks um, learned, how accurate they learned, and how good their semantic knowledge is on, on one hand. And on the other hand, we have all of these markers that we took from them initially. We know their aptitude, their numeracy, their language skills, and their cognitive abilities. And that's then where the statistical analysis comes into play ultimately what they're trying to do is they're trying to see hey do some of these factors predict how well someone will be doing in this in this course so if we know that someone is really really good at numeracy will this allow us to predict that they're also going to be a really fast learner or a really accurate learner or then semantic knowledge will be really high or, you know, on the other hand, won't it do that? Or will a different metric tell us that with a higher um, likelihood? Don't don't leave the cliffhanger there. What what are the results? What's going on? What's what's happening here? Yeah, first of all, there were, was a big difference, or there was a difference in in the speed. I mean, just to be expected, the fastest learners learned yep. at about a two and a half. Um, two and a half fold rate of the slowest learner in this in this group, and um, the same variability was also uh, true in the accuracy and the declarative knowledge test. And also at the same time, all of these three markers, all of these three things, were highly yep. intercorrelated. If you were a really fast learner, you also tended to be 
tended to have a high accuracy and you also tended to have a, a, a good declarative knowledge. So it seems there's a certain aptitude. Like if you're good at learning uh, programming or we could also say at doing these tests because, yeah. you know, there is a definition would be said here, how well that will translate to, let's say, you becoming a master or junior programmer who would actually work as a programmer in that field and get paid for it. This, there might be a difference here. But generally, if you learn fast, you also learned accurate and your knowledge, your declarative knowledge was pretty good. So now we're looking at the individual initial tests and how well they predicted how well you would do on this test or on these three metrics. If you had a high language aptitude, so if you did very well on the modern language aptitude test, that was a robust predictor of all of the Python learning outcomes. So learning rate, programming accuracy, and declarative knowledge had a reasonably high, like 0.56 for the statistical experts out there, um, around the 0.55, I would say on average, marker um, correlation with, the, with these learning outcomes. So if you're good at learning languages, that tended to correlate with you being good at learning or doing these tests in Python. Numeracy was also a significant predictor of a learning outcome. And at a overall slightly lower level, but still relatively high. So still like around the 0.5 correlation factor on, on average. And your general cognitive abilities, so fluid reasoning, working memory updating, working memory span, and inhibitory control, those were the four uh, subcategories for your uh, cognitive abilities, were also significant predictors of learning to program in Python. And obviously, um, kind of, I think that we should mention this here. When we, I think when you look at this, and I looked at this, we came kind of to the same conclusion that, hmm, what's the, is there an underlying factor here? So how closely are numeracy, language aptitude, and general cognitive abilities connected? Because this is sort of, I think, the um, something that stands out here. Like if these three things are basically very closely connected, then it, it's kind of logical that they would all explain um, a higher language aptitude. I, and I really tried to think about this. Like how many people do I know that are uniquely good at language learning, but maybe uniquely bad at numeracy um, and vice versa? Yeah, I mean, I knew a few. Um, I think one of, the, one of the interesting factors with language aptitude uh, that you can tease out a little bit is that um, it actually plays really well despite the type of language learning. Um, and, and so they've done tests into how well like the modern language aptitude test does with, for example, communicative language learning, which is very different than like a, uh, an old school, like translate this, translate the grammar of the sentence into, um, into the new language. Um, and so I do know anecdotally of people who would classify themselves as bad at math that were quite good language learners that really picked up and, and became quite fluent in a foreign language. 
Um, so yeah, I, I know people like that, uh, hard to, hard to say unequivocally that, that like they would perform poorly on a numeracy test. Cause like we didn't check, but, um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I know people anecdotally what the trend is, is really, really hard to guess. Yeah. I do have one example from my immediate family. My sister is very good at language learning. I mean, also it's the, I think there is some element of, of, putting yourself in that position. So she lived in different countries, but she speaks, you know, German, English, uh, Spanish and Portuguese fluently, and she can absolutely hold her own in Italian. And I think equally in French. Those are all, like I always make the caveat when I say I speak Portuguese and Spanish, that those for me are almost like kind of the same language with like small modifications and a bit of different pronunciation and Spanish and Portuguese speakers might, may now throw some... <laughs> virtual rocks at me <laughs> for saying that but uh, there is a podcast at ultraworking.com virtual rocks yeah there is like i think an 86 percent um, overlap in the vocabulary between uh, spanish and portuguese so uh, it's a different like it's a different story to add i don't know like chinese or russian or arabic to the mix that that really make complicates things <laughs> but yeah my, my sister is sure. good at language learning just like proven that she's good at picking up languages and has historically not been a very big fan of math, let's put it mildly. Um, so mm -hmm. in the past, I would have been fairly convinced, you know, just like in my mind, the model was, okay, if you're not good and not doing so well with mathematical topics, then, you know, kind of learning a programming language would be out of the question. That's how I related to it. And after reading this paper and after looking at this, at least I'm not so sure about that. Yeah. That intrigues me because obviously you've studied programming as well as a lot of engineering. When you, when you first learned JavaScript or I don't know if you've done Python before or something like that, did it, did you classify it as being like heavily dependent on numeracy and, and things like that in your own mind? Like, was that your experience learning it or was it a little bit different? No, I didn't really classify it as numeracy. I'm not sure how I think or how I thought about the concept of numeracy. I classified it as requiring maybe the ability to do abstraction, requiring the ability of just like general, like structured thinking. Mm -hmm. There are some things that, you know, I had math in engineering school and obviously you, you know, you get so used, for example, at the concept of, the, of a variable like at something just being a representation of something else. And then you like work with X. And I think when you first, I remember marginally still remember the first time you get in contact with this concept of a variable that doesn't really mean anything specific, but it's just a placeholder. I think at the very beginning, it is slightly weird or maybe even confusing for a little bit until you get used to it. So I could see that someone who has never had any any you know confrontation with that kind of concept might initially be a little bit puzzled when they get in touch with 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 variables and programming yeah that's interesting and i wonder if i wonder if variables actually are in some way similar to like how you would see a word in a foreign language if you're learning it um, as a, a second language learner because you're, you're kind of like stepping outside. I guess I imagine that like if you have the word dog and then like you have a physical dog and like 
if you only know one language, you're just saying, oh, that thing is a dog. But when you learn a foreign language, all of a sudden you have you have this word dog and then you have like in Japanese it's inu. And, and so you have inu and you have dog. But this, you all of a sudden see the word dog as an abstraction rather than the physical object. And so maybe, maybe there is some similarity there. Um, between you know being able to see these words as abstractions, as, as abstractions from the physical world, and then in programming language, being able to to have variables that uh, can contain a variety of different data. I don't know. I'm just spitballing, but but uh, that's that's what comes to mind. Yeah, I don't, I don't exactly know how I'm supposed to think about it now. It would be really interesting. I mean, I, I did send sort of like a quote from this paper uh, to my sister because it stood out to me um, that, yep. you know, like just because you're quote unquote bad at math doesn't necessarily mean that that's the only metric to look at to at least get a baseline level of understanding of how programming languages work and maybe, you know, lose your, lose your fear uh, of, that, of that general topic. I mean, a very direct correlation is just the sheer amount of vocabulary that like the vocabulary hill that you climb um, and the con conceptual hill that you have to climb when you first learn programming. It's like all of a sudden you have like a function and an interface and an attribute and a parameter and a string, but like a string is not like the thing that your kitten plays with. It's like a set of characters and, and so on and so forth. And you have all of these new words that you're confronted with um, quite quickly and in quick succession. And you have to kind of like put them into their places to figure out what they represent. And um, in that sense, it actually reminds me very much of trying to decode a, a foreign language and, and some of the abstract skills that are, are involved with that. Yeah, it seems kind of absolutely plausible that if you're able to hold 5,000 you know, new representations in your mind, just a random collection of, of characters that now mean something that you already knew as something else mm -hmm. that you could also, you know, learn um, different commands and different functions and different uh, methods to do something in, in a programming language. And yeah, it's interesting. Some of the best. So for example, I, again, coming back to the personal example, in, in learning languages, my, my sister always showed a really, really high level of very interesting mental tricks and creativity. So she learned um, Swahili um, in, in, in school. And, you know, there isn't much to hold on. So as, a, as an English or German speaker, if you learn Spanish or French or Italian, it's just there's an, enough overlap and enough similarity between those languages that you have something to hold on to. In a different language, and I, I personally experienced this trying to learn Russian, for example, there is nothing to hold on to. This is like a completely, we were talking about um, chunking yep. and um, how many blocks of information you can hold in your mind. And when yep. you learn... Seven plus or minus two. Yep. Yeah, look up the paper. It's great. Yeah. No, in, in Spanish, I would look at the word maybe two or three times and it would somehow just stick. I look at it. It kind of makes sense. Now it's there. And in Russian, I would find the case that with some words, these words would just in my mind appear as a random collection of, of characters. And it would just be, a, I would say, tenfold harder 
where some words, I look at them 20 times and I still just can't remember them on the 21st time. It's just uh, the, the moment I'm not like constantly repeating them, they're, they're just gone. And uh, yeah, my, my sister would come up with these mnemonic yeah. examples of how to learn the numbers yeah. in Swahili. So she had this whole story in her mind of like a kingdom and the different peoples, they're interacting and they're doing certain activities and she would naturally do this. And I'm like, okay, if you're, if you have that level of creativity for this one specific activity, you know, this should somehow translate to other activities. Um, and if you can do that, then I don't expect you to, you know, massively fail at picking up, a, you know, a simple structure in, in programming. Yeah, I mean, if you're if you're able to to put together mnemonic devices and break down concepts, I could certainly see that being the case. Um, has your sister attempted it? Is this is this something that she's actually tried before, or is it kind of a hypothetical where she's always been a little intimidated by it? No, I, I think it's a it's a hypothetical. But if you, I, she probably wouldn't even consider herself trying that because I think yeah, also in her mind, and I'm, I would almost think in in most folks' mind. That in the paper points this out, even in in in, in um, education, you know the prerequisites to even be able to join a programming course in university is like well, but did you actually complete math one hundred and one? Um, otherwise, we won't let you sure. in. And so I think it's uh, yeah historically been connected very much to your ability to do math and and be good at math. Yeah, and and like they're looking at Python, and actually Python and a lot of modern programming languages, I think, are quite, especially when it, in the context of web development, um, can be quite low on mathematical, like actual, like high level mathematics. That like second year university or, or first year university or even late high school um, type mathematics. Whereas like if you want to be a, a game developer and and do like physics systems or something like that, okay, well. The kind of maybe maybe nowadays with engines that's also different, but traditionally, if you're going to do physics for for video games, your, your math needs to be pretty sharp. Um, and uh, on the other hand, if you want to make a website um, and even do some of the back end coding, you don't need calculus mm. um, or stats or, or anything like that to to put these together. So let's move back um, to the um, results. So working memory span was a high predictor, for example, of learning rate and programming accuracy. Inhibitory control only correlated with declarative knowledge. And then you could like try to think about and come up with a theory of why that might be the case. What does inhibitory control mean here? I, I think this is closely related to attentional control. Basically, your ability to maintain and focus your attention on a specific thing and not let yourself get sidelined or lose focus. Not get distracted, not, not get off track. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, but you're saying the most... The most interesting finding for me, the one thing that really I had never seen, I didn't actually even know was possible, was this whole the whole stuff here in this paper around the resting state EEG predictors of Python learning outcomes. 
and we're, we're trying I'm, I'm trying to to walk you and me and the listener through this because I can't really claim that I fully understand all of the words in here so there is this thing called the intrinsic network connectivity that's sort of a a construct that they can measure by doing this resting state EEG so they you know they put the people I think with closed eyes for five minutes basically doing nothing thinking about nothing in in, in particular, and they measured these these specific brain waves, and um, here is the result from this. Python learning rate was predicted <laughs> by resting state EEG power yep. in the beta frequency range recorded over the right frontotemporal network. So they measured your a specific brain wave pattern in your right frontotemporal network. And if they found a certain result that like was at a certain level, then that predicted your Python learning rate. Meaning I could take someone from the street or anywhere. I could put him in a chair. I could put the EEG device on his head, measure for five minutes, look at the brainwave pattern, and then tell that guy or girl, hey, I think you're going to be a fast Python learner or a slow Python learner. That's basically, I think, how this result is, yeah, or what this means, this, um, this finding. Additionally, post-test declarative knowledge was predicted by power in the low gamma frequency range recorded in the same network. So again, they now found a different brainwave pattern, the low gamma frequency range, and they, they have the exact uh, hertz frequencies that this means. I think this, uh, the low gamma frequency is 30 to 40 hertz. So if we find a higher level of brainwaves in the 30 to 40 hertz region in this part of your frontotemporal network, then you're going to be very good at the end of the Python learning experience at your post, at your declarative knowledge. And yeah, this, I, I honestly didn't even know this was a thing. <laughs> this, uh, this whole, I mean, I knew that obviously they do EEGs and they're useful and they're used for all sorts of applications, but that it's this precise now and it's able to predict specific outcomes that was uh, very new to me, very surprising. And I, yeah, I'm interested to look into this more and see for what else this could be used and, and also how to get my hands on one of these machines, potentially. Yeah, indeed. And to, to clarify a little bit, this is, this is resting state EEG, right? So they're not doing the task or anything. This is before they start the task. This is before, before they they're start. like, yeah. 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 This so is, this is before they start. So this has nothing to do with them actually doing something It's or the way that they're doing it. It's just like the state of their brain exactly. before they get started. Yeah, exactly. So I think potentially, I'm not sure exactly. I think potentially once you have learned even just one foreign language that this has forever altered your brain, so I think they find differences between monolingual people and bilingual people. 
in exactly these networks. So there is a difference that they can measure between someone who only speaks one language or someone who speaks two or multiple languages in these exact brainwaves and these exact uh, regions of the brain. And once they have identified those, they then predict also your ability uh, to learn or you know, your, your learning rate and your learning knowledge rate, I guess. That's fascinating. I, I would, I too would love to see how this plays across different domains and with different types of learning and different types of performance in general. It's cool because you read these papers to, you know, learn about different findings, but you also, I always pick up some interesting words, you know, so for example, the conclusion has the word of a neurocognitive predictor. So this, uh, this, you know, EEG result is considered a neurocognitive predictor. And that's just, okay. I mean, that's seems to be a new research field. It reminds me a bit of, you know, the movie Gedeka, where they have, I guess they have genetic predictors of aptitude. Yeah. I mean, like, look at a glance, obviously this sounds a little bit dystopian, like throw, throw something on your head and it's going to tell you how, how good you are at this or that. But at the same time, like personally, I would love to know a little bit more rigorously um, what I have uh, an aptitude for. I'd also love to know how influenceable the metric is. Like if I go out and like meditate for a month or something like that and come back, like, is my profile going to be different? Um, and then like, does that then affect my ability to learn Python quickly? Um, you know, these questions open up when you have a, a neuro predictor, I think is what you called it. Right. Um, these questions open up. What are the, what are the interventions? What can we do um, to move the playing field more in our advantage? Yeah. So going further over the conclusions, this is a direct quote. Using the combination of neural and behavioral measurements that have previously been associated with natural language learning, we were able to explain up to 70% of the variability in Python learning outcomes. So the same neural and behavioral measurements that predict language learning explained about 70% of the differences in Python learning outcomes. That's incredible. Numeracy only explained variance in Python learning rate and accounted for an average of 2% of the variance across outcome variables. So yeah, numeracy, yeah. while it was still highly correlated, it actually, I think if I read this correctly, it's sort of just a intermediary. I'm not quite sure if I'm getting this 100% correct, but yeah, numeracy wasn't a strong predictor across all three of these metrics. So um, it was a strong predictor in your learning rate, but it wasn't a strong predictor mm -hmm. across the accuracy as well and the decorative knowledge. Mm -hmm. And it's the, the variance. So who's, who's learning quite quickly or quite accurately and, and likewise. Yeah. And so they say, right, they say that this suggests that the importance of numeracy may be overstated in modern programming education environments. So there are, there are a lot of adjectives and qualifications in that sentence. Um, modern programming education environments. So they're talking about school and stuff like that. But um, nonetheless, it's very, very interesting that at least at a 
beginning level, at least at a, an introductory type of level, and perhaps even further along for um, some domains in programming, the importance of numeracy uh, might be well overstated, kind of a relic of, of maybe its past importance as you know, programming has developed in lots of different ways. It's still, like, I, I tried to find it. I couldn't find it. I, you know, searched around somewhat for any studies on general correlations between numeracy and these other cognitive abilities. So does, for example, a, a fluid reasoning ability also predict your ability in general to learn languages? And just like how closely related or correlated are these beginning factors um, because obviously, if there is the concept of general intelligence, there's a lot of controversy around how this term is put together. But it's basically just the fact that we have identified an, an underlying statistical factor that correlates with all sorts of different outcomes. And we can throw almost any task at you if this K factor, I think it's what it's called, is good. Um, or is high, then you will be able to solve this task and figure it out. And, you know, this might explain that um, if your K factor, if you're just like a, you know, quote unquote smart person, then you're generally going to be able to figure out math, figure out language learning, have a high working memory, reasonable, um, fluid reasoning, reasoning ability, and a sort of are a generalist at solving cognitive tasks and um, couldn't find this in the paper might be interesting to you know dive into this deeper how these things are correlated but uh, yeah um, again from the the final sort of conclusion of the paper all the numeracy was a reliable predictor of programming aptitude it was far from the most significant predictor this research also begins the process of identifying the neural characteristics of individual differences in Python learning aptitude, yeah. which can be used as targets for technologies such as neurofeedback and neurostimulation that modify patterns of connectivity and alter corresponding behaviors. All right, Chris. All right, Chris. What is, what is neurofeedback and what is neurostimulation and, and how do we get some of these over here at Ultraworking? Well, neurofeedback... Here's an example uh, how this might look like. When they look at meditators, they take a Zen Buddhist monk who's been doing this for 40 years. They do find differences in the way their brain works and brainwave patterns. Meditation is one of those things where it's really hard to tell if you're doing it right. You're sitting there, someone explains what's supposed to happen in your own mind, and you're just at the beginning really like just like broadly trying to you're trying to do the right thing based on an explanation of, of what you think the right thing actually looks like. Now, in neurofeedback, what, what they might be doing is they put an EEG on you, they measure your brain waves, and they play a tone, for example, back to you. So as your brain waves change to a certain pattern, the tone might go up in pitch, it might go down in pitch, and now you're basically getting a feedback mechanism that relates your neural processes to a tone or to a to a. Um, that makes sense. 
yeah, I've heard of like biofeedback where you wear like a, a, a chest strap or something like that. And, and you watch, you watch the, the line of your heart beating up and down, and then you perhaps through breath or some other kind of mechanism, try to get that line to behave in a particular way. Yeah. 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 I mean, in this case, I think it's, I would love to test this at least with meditation because it's like, now you're doing it correctly. Now you're doing it incorrectly. If you had that level of um, yeah. guidance, I think you could ex- advance much faster. You know, uh, I don't know. I, I, here's the the most simple um, example of, of feedback. When I was learning to drive in Europe, we drive stick. So you have to mm-hmm. use the clutch to, um, you know, to, to switch gears. Uh, apparently, beginner drivers, me included, would keep their foot lightly on the clutch. Um, which is not a good practice. You shouldn't do that. And the feedback that I received was my driving instructor sort of like hitting my thigh strongly. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah. this was very, very direct feedback. And it took like that happening like two or three times until I, my, my foot was no longer on the on the clutch. <laughs> so I know the the, the effects of, uh, of direct feedback and learning. There's some conditioning uh, going on there. Yeah, absolutely. Exactly. Yeah. And especially with something neural neurofeedback, it's very hard to like adequately assess what's going on in your own mind. So being able to get a objective, realistic readout for you to actually see what's going on, I think is super valuable in, in learning. It's not really a common practice yet, but neurostimulation, I guess, would be to, with external tools, maybe something like um, low current, what is it called? where they put like electrodes onto your head and send a very, very mild current uh, between those electrodes in order to uh, affect basically what's going on in your, in your, in your mind. I mean, our brain is, you know, is kind of a electrical circuit to some degree. The neurons communicate signals electrically and um, yeah, putting an external current on there can can have an effect of which um, regions of the brain activate and to what degree and, and how exactly. Absolutely fascinating. I mean, it just, it just opens up. This, this paper is interesting on a lot of different levels. Like on the, on the very basic educational level, the numeracy type things are all fascinating. Um, you get into the, the EEG, the resting state EEG stuff. That's also really interesting. And then neurostimulation and neurofeedback and the ability to, yeah, through technology and really good data, manipulate your starting states and perhaps your aptitude is fascinating. And uh, thank you, researchers, for, for putting this together because I, I think there's not only a lot of important and very practical, like near-term questions being asked here, but the, the long-term implications of of this kind of research going on uh, seem tremendous it seems it's interesting these researchers i looked into some of the other papers that they published and it's actually a lot about you know resting state eeg analysis so there were at least a couple more papers looking at this and trying to predict if you can tell you know uh, any differences in in people who have picked up a certain skill or engaged in a certain field, and, and how will this reflect in in, in their brainwaves? Um, okay, 
I think we're basically covered uh, the whole paper. We will put the link to it in the show notes. I think it's, you know, if, you're in, if you're into this kind of stuff, it's a really good read. You learn about just, you know, general how researchers conduct this kind of research. You learn about different um, aptitude tests and they go into it in detail exactly how they determine. And I would, you know, I think yeah. it's, I think, you know, generally people are really into self-tests and um, there's a reason why the Myers-Briggs is so popular. Sense. People like to learn about themselves and you could, you know, look at that some of the sense. tests in here and, and see how well you're performing on them. I don't know my my MLAT test and I don't know my numeracy score. So maybe I'll find, I'll go and find some online tests that I can do for this just to you know get some, some new data. But uh, yeah, really cool paper. Thank you, Lee, for indulging me and, and going uh, through it with me. Thanks for having me on. My pleasure. And uh, yeah, until next time, thank you for listening, dear listener. As always, be well.